Turn with me again, if you will, to Genesis chapter 45. This morning we'll look at 45 verse 25, right at the end of that chapter, down through a good bit of chapter 46 to verse 30. 45:25 to 46:30, most of which is this long list of names, uh, which uh, we'll struggle through. I'm struggling this morning, and uh, don't be alarmed, I'm not sick, it's just allergy time. <clears throat> if I can keep from coughing, we'll do all right. If I don't, <clears throat> bear with me. You know, there have been decisive uh, movements of people throughout history which have changed the whole course of history. Of course, one that's real familiar to us is that in September of, of 1620, 102 people crowded on to a boat named the Mayflower in Plymouth, England and set sail for a couple of months uh, to arrive in the New World. And that was a decisive move which changed the course of history. Well, our text today tells about an even greater history-changing migration. And the significance of it is hinted at in the fact that the names of all 70 people are courted. So here, almost 4,000 years later, we, we have this very detailed record of who actually made this move. Of course, I'm talking about the move of Jacob and the sons of Israel. Israel is the other name for Jacob. The, the, uh, Jacob and the sons of Israel down into Egypt where they and their descendants would live for the next 400 years longer than this nation has been around, longer than it's been since the Mayflower sale, 400 years they were to live there. This resettlement, though, set the stage for the Exodus, which is the greatest event recorded in the whole Old Testament, and which is the Old Testament foreshadowing of Christ's work of salvation to deliver us from the bondage of sin and give us new life. This is an, event, an important event. But it's not just ancient history, for God has some things to teach us as we think about uh, this move by Jacob and his family, especially what Jacob was, what was happening with Jacob. And we try to see that the way God dealt with Jacob is the same way that God deals with us in our lives that maybe never know such uh, a, a great uh, event as uh, this kind of a move. Well, let's read the text, and we'll struggle through the names, but then let's uh, see what we can learn from it. Verse 25, Genesis 45, 25. So they, they, that is, the sons of uh, Jacob, they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler over all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Jacob had said to them, and when they saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision that night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. 
Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and the possessions they have acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons, his grandsons, and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puah, Jashub and Shimron, the sons of Zebulon, Zered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons Leah bore to Jacob in Padam Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters were, uh, of his were 33 in all. Then the sons of Gad, Zephon, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, uh, Erodai, and Erelai. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, and Beriah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Beriah, Hebar, and Malkiel. These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given his daughter Leah, 16 in all. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph, by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Baker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Elhi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. The son of, sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazael, Guni, Jezar, and Shalom. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt and the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen, when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. And Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Well, this is a fairly brief account of a, of a great, great move of a lot of people. We're told very few details, the names, and that's uh, about it. 
But I think we're told enough that we should learn a couple of lessons from this text. So let me suggest two truths, which I think we need to learn from this. The first is this, that our fondest dreams are subject to the Lord. Our fondest dreams are subject to the Lord. Please excuse a very personal illustration. But I want to. I want to. Uh, I think this will uh, help explain what I'm saying. About ten years ago, uh, while I was in New Jersey, I heard that uh, there was a place called Wiser Lake Chapel out in Whatcom County that was looking for a pastor, and I was immediately ready to go. I lived in the Northwest for years and. Uh, had gone back east to go to school, and one thing had led to another, and now I had uh, stayed there 18 years. And uh, always wanting to go back to the Northwest, but there was never an opportunity. And so upon learning of uh, chapel, I immediately sent a letter of interest and a resume and everything else I could get my hands on, because I wanted to go. But after that initial moment of response, during the whole decision-making process that followed, which went on for months, March, April, May, June, July, at least. The fact that the chapel was here, where I wanted to live, which was the thing that attracted me at the beginning, that became the greatest snare and made that the most difficult decision that I ever had to make. Yes, I would like to go there, but, but what about God's will? How could I know that it's not just my heart's desire driving me rather than the Lord driving me? There was no end to my self-doubt. There was no end to the intense scrutiny of my own motives. And I tell you that because I think that's what happened to Jacob in this text. In verses 25 to 28, here at the end of uh, chapter 45, his sons bring him word that his favorite son Joseph is alive, ruling in Egypt, and is sent for his father. He has trouble believing it, but he's finally convinced when he sees all the evidence. And once he's convinced, this is a no-brainer. Let's go! He says it in, uh, in, in verse 28. He says, Jacob... Uh, Israel or Jacob said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And he packed up everything that he owned, everyone in his family, and he was ready to go. And he headed out, and he got as far as Beersheba, about 25 miles. And he stopped. I believe that the reason he stopped was that Jacob suddenly realized that even our fondest dreams still must be subject to the Lord. According to our text, Jacob simply stopped at Beersheba to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But during the night, the Lord spoke to him there, and in the record of what the Lord had to say to Jacob, I think we can discern something about what was going on in Jacob's mind, because we know what kind of answers the Lord gave him. 
And what was going on in Jacob's mind was that he was struggling with the implications of this move which he had begun. He was struggling with the fact that as much as he wanted to see his son Joseph, this was his fondest dream for years now. It had to be God's plan, not just his desire. For even our fondest dreams are subject to the Lord. So let's look at what the Lord said to Jacob at that in that vision that night at Beersheba, and trying to work backwards then, let me suggest what Joseph was, what Jacob was thinking, what his fears were. We can tell what they were by what the Lord answered, how, what kind of answers the Lord gave him. So let's think about what Jacob's fears were. What bothered him? Why, why was he having second thought? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, Jacob feared the effect Egypt might have on his family. Jacob had already seen the terrible influence that the Canaanites had had on his sons. A lot of wickedness had come into his family from the Canaanites. But Egypt was even more foreboding. On the one hand, Egypt was the most highly developed country in the whole world at that time. They had experts in mathematics and architecture and astronomy and agriculture and medicine. They were a very highly civilized place. But with all of its culture and learning, Egypt was also a land of gross idolatry. Dr. Jim Boyce describes it. Listen to his description. He said, Egypt has a pantheon, had a pantheon of gods. Osiris, Hapimon, and Tarot, who were the gods of the Nile, knew the god of the life of the river, Geb, the god of the land. There were Nephri, the grain god, Anubis, guardian of the fields, men, deity of the harvest and crop. There were the gods in the form of animals, Apis the bull god, Hathar the cow goddess, Shechemet the lion, Kum the ram, Sobek the crocodile, Toth the ibis, Horus and Month the bird gods, Nut was the sky, Shu was the atmosphere, and greatest of all was Ra, the sun god, who was thought to be embodied in the reigning pharaoh. How could Israel possibly immigrate into such a pagan but very developed civilized place and not completely lose their identity as the people of God, God's covenant people. Jacob was afraid. A question modern parents, by the way, might well ask themselves sometimes when they contemplate uprooting their family and going somewhere. What will this mean for the faith of my children? In verse 3, God says, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. You see, God doesn't just grow his people in the protected hothouse. Sometimes God is pleased to plant them in the fields of adversity. What matters is where God wants you planted. Not just where you want to be. Verse 
even our fondest dreams, you see, are subject to the Lord. Second thing, Jacob feared that leaving the land, the promised land, would be an abandonment of God's covenant. And he had good reason to be concerned about this, by the way. Beersheba, we don't know our geography very well, but Beersheba is right on the southern edge of the promised land. Beyond Beersheba, south of Beersheba, there's nothing but desert until you get to Egypt. In fact, later on, if somebody was talking about the, the whole land, we might say from the Atlantic to the Pacific in our land, but, but there they would, if they were talking about the whole land, they would say from Dan to Beersheba. Beersheba is the edge of the earth as far as the promised land is concerned. When Jacob rolled those carts out of Beersheba, he would truly be leaving Canaan, where God had sent his grandfather Abraham many years before with the promise that I'm going to give you this land. And you remember this has been tried before. Back in chapter 12, in a previous famine, Abram decided right after God had promised him, I'm going to give you this land. Abram uh, saw the famine. He said, I'm headed for Egypt apparently driven by a lack of faith in the Lord and by a very practical thing of, well, there's a famine, we've got to go. But he almost lost his wife to Pharaoh's harem down there. And then back in chapter 26, when famine struck again, Jacob's father Isaac said, well, I'll just go down to Egypt. There's food in Egypt. But there at Beersheba, God specifically forbade Isaac to go to Egypt. Listen to what the Lord said. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, a Jacob suddenly thought about what he's doing. His grandfather tried it and it didn't work. His father tried it and God specifically intervened and said, don't go. And now he, here he is with all of his family packed up and the carts are loaded and all of his earthly belongings headed south through Beersheba. And he suddenly says, I can't do this. No matter how much Jacob wanted to be re reunited with his son Joseph, if it meant leaving God's covenant behind. It was not worth it. What Jesus says to us, gain the whole world, and you lose your own soul. What will you do? Even our fondest dreams must bow to the Lord. still true. I don't care what the promise. I don't care what the treasure. I don't care how fond the dream. Do not turn your back on the Lord's promise. It will not work. It will come to nothing. It will only bring heartache. There is no joy apart from God. Oh, but Jacob's situation is different than Abram's, and it's different than his father Isaac's. And so here God says to Jacob, don't be afraid, Jacob. Verse 4, the Lord says, 
uh, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. You see, the promised land was not magic. If we stay in this, in this holy land, well, then God will bless us. No, the point was, where is the Lord? It's the Lord's presence that matters. And if God wants Jacob in Egypt, and if God will go before him, then Egypt is the place of God's blessing as much as Canaan. But if, Egypt go, if Jacob goes to Egypt apart from God's presence, he only violates covenant. All the wealth and the sophistication of Egypt will become a curse. So the Lord says, go. I'll go with you. And his fear is alleviated. That's the third fear that I think we see reflected here, and that is that Jacob feared for himself. Remember here, Jacob, I mean, we read all of this, and it all runs together uh, with us, but Jacob is 130 years old at this point. Change doesn't come easy for us as we age. We don't have any 130-year-olds here. But even the 50-something-year-olds can tell you that change is more difficult. As we get more frail, we get more concerned about our situation. We can't just get up and do whatever we please. We don't have the independence. So what will it mean for Jacob to move away from his homeland to a country far away where they speak a different language, where there's a whole different culture, where... Uh, and from which he will undoubtedly never come back. What will this mean for this old man? It's a frightening prospect. No matter how much he loves Joseph, he hasn't seen Joseph in 22 years. How does he know the situation's going to work out? What kind of reception is he going to receive from Joseph? How's this going to work out five years from now, ten years from now? How can he face dying in a foreign land far from home? Oh, trust me, you wouldn't want to go either. He was afraid. His fondest dream to see his son and fear of what that's going to mean for him. But God says, Jacob, don't be afraid. Verse 4, Joseph's own eyes will close, own hand will close your eyes. It's a reference to the custom of the eldest son gently closing the eyes of his deceased father. A Jewish custom which continues to this day, I understand. In other words, God assures Jacob that he will be taken care of, that Joseph's concern for him will be sincere when he arrives and will continue until the day that he dies, and in fact, that one day they'll bring his body home. Isn't this a wonderful personal word of encouragement that the Lord gives to Jacob? But you see, these wonderful words of encouragement only come when Jacob surrenders his heart's desire his fondest dream to the Lord. When he stops dead in his tracks, stops pursuing his dreams, and sacrifices, worships the Lord, calls upon the name of the Lord, surrenders himself to the God of his Father, the God of the covenant. My dear people, here's another reason to not forsake gathering ourselves before the Lord to worship it's as we come and humble ourselves before the Lord that the Lord causes us to see clearly and put on the brakes before our crazy ideas get out of hand. When we see the Lord, 
And we're reminded of his covenant promises and reminded of the obligation that he lays upon us and called again to faithfulness. Keeps our passions and our plans from, from, from running away with us. For even our fondest dreams are subject to the Lord. And so the Lord, having answered uh, Jacob's fears, gives his approval for Jacob to pick up his family and move to Egypt. And that's what he does. And all the sons and the grandsons are listed by name here. There's 70 of them in all, counting uh, Joseph and his sons who are in Egypt already. And they leave nothing behind and they leave no one behind. This is a momentous event in the history of God's people. The whole people, the whole nation, this little embryo of a nation, packing up lock, stock, and barrel and moving to Egypt. But you see, it doesn't happen on a whim. It's not the foolhardy dream of an old man longing to see his son. It's not some harebrained idea that got out of hand before anybody thought about the implications of it. No, this is God's will, for it's now Jacob's fondest dream made subject to his Lord. Is that the pattern of your life? Can you sing with conviction? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter. I'm the clay. Mold me and make me after your will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Our fondest dreams, like Jacob's, are subject to the Lord. Then I think there's a second lesson that we learn from how God dealt with Jacob here. And that's this. That in joy and in sorrow, God directs our ways. In joy and in sorrow, God directs our ways. One of the most distorted teachings going around churches these days has to do with God's guidance. Christians everywhere agree that God guides his children. But many Christians live in constant fear that somehow they're going to inadvertently step out of God's will, even though they're not sure what God's will is. And we've developed all kinds of ways to discern God's will. Some of them are, are, are almost laughable, foolish, absurd. Some of them are hardly different from pagan divination. Little magic rites by which we... Little omens or something. What is this? But probably most commonly, Christians, when push comes to shove, they just do whatever they want to do, really. Do whatever I want. And while the world says, I did it my way, Christians say, well, I just felt it was the Lord's will for me. They're crazy. We really need to learn the lesson about God's guidance, which is woven repeatedly through this whole Joseph story from chapter 37 to the end of the book, chapter 50, how God leads his people. 
Here's some of the best texts on God's providential guidance in the whole Bible. We've talked about them along the way. We'll talk about them some more. But this morning, I just want to uh, point it out to you one more time that through joy and through sorrow, God is always directing the ways of his people. Now, Jacob knew some sorrows in his life. Let's think about that for a moment. We've uh, followed Jacob's life uh, from, from the beginning. Jacob has encountered lots of trouble. A lot of it was of his own making. His father had favored him, had favored his brother Esau over him, and that caused him a lot of grief as he was growing up. So Jacob, always the conniver, decided to cheat his brother out of his father's blessing, which he did. Lied to his father, cheated, deceived his father, cheated his brother, and then he had to deal with Esau's uh, promise that he was going to kill him. And so Jacob fled, took off, hit the road, a fugitive now from his angry brother. He went to his uncle Laban's house. But Laban then turned around and cheated him. He promised he'd work seven years if he could marry Laban's daughter Rachel. He worked seven years and Laban gave him Leah, who he didn't love at all. He had to work another seven years for Rachel. Then for 20 years, Laban repeatedly uh, reneged on the wages that they had agreed to and took advantage of Jacob. Jacob knew trouble for 20 years at Laban's house. Finally, he'd had enough, and he left. He just stole away, and Laban came after him with the threatening, uh, 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 making threatening noises, uh, like he's, he's going to take him on and destroy him. Jacob went back only to have to face his brother Esau with all the fear, fearful prospects that that held. A brother who the last time he saw him said, I'm going to kill you. And as he is waiting to see his brother Esau as he's facing that frightening, frightening prospect. The angel of the Lord confronts Jacob, and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord leaves him lame for life. All these years later, he still is walking with a limp because the Lord wounded him in that wrestling match. Well, finally, he settled back in the land of Canaan, and when he did, Shechem defiled his daughter Dinah. So his sons, in retaliation, massacred all the people of the town of Shechem, which made Jacob the stench in the nostrils of the whole community. Picked up and moved again, afraid of what would happen. His dear wife Rachel, who he loved more than life, died giving birth to Benjamin. Then not long after that, his favorite son Joseph was apparently killed by wild animals. Really, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now for 22 years, Jacob has lived in unrelenting grief, unable to be comforted. This man knew sorrow. This man knew trouble. Whether of his own making or somebody else's, he knew what it was to hurt. And now in this passage, we see Jacob experiencing unparalleled joy. The end of chapter 45, we can hear his excitement as Jacob is finally convinced that his son Joseph is really alive. But in verses in chapter 46, verse 29 and 30, we see the most joyful reunion imaginable. Let me read it again. Verse 29, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. 
And as soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father, and he wept for a long time. And Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Can you imagine the scene? Jacob sounds like old Simeon when he, when he saw Jesus, the baby Jesus. Lord, you can take me home now. This is all I wanted in all of my life. Jacob says, I only wanted to see my son again. It went from, I'll die never being comforted back a few chapters ago to take me home, Lord. It doesn't matter. My joy is overwhelming. It's all I want. I can't imagine what it would be like to see a son that you thought was dead for 22 years and to suddenly see him and hold him again. Interestingly, while I was studying this passage this week, I read a news account of a woman who had been missing for 17 years, finally located and reunited with her parents. They're all overcome with emotion. Even the police that are dealing with it say, I've never seen anything like it. I can't imagine the emotional scene. But Jacob's joy is even greater. He had no hope at all that his son was alive. He knew he was dead. It hadn't been 17 years, it's been 22 years. Now Joseph is not only alive, he rules in Egypt, and Jacob is there to enjoy his presence and all of the prosperity uh, uh, to share it for the rest of his life. Oh, Jacob knows joy. So was God working in the time of trouble or the time of joy? Is God the God of the tough times, or is God the God of the good times? Which is the better soil for God's will for us to grow? In the soil of tears, hardship, or in the soil of prosperity and blessing? Where does God work best? Well, Job understood it probably better than all of us. He said, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In other words, it doesn't matter. Both. In both joy and sorrow, God is always directing the lives of his people. We see this truth as we look beyond the immediate context of Jacob's joy and view it in light of the larger context of the book. Looking back, do you remember God's foreboding statement to Abraham way back in chapter 15? That night when God made a covenant with Abraham, went through the whole covenant ritual of taking the animals and dividing them, and then the two people making the covenant walked through, except that God caused Abraham to go to sleep, and God alone walked through, showing the graciousness of his covenant. It's not dependent on Abraham, it's dependent on God. But then do you remember what God said to Abraham back in chapter 15? The Lord said to him, I quote here, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possession. There was God predicting Jacob's migration down to Egypt and the miraculous exodus that's going to happen 400 years later when they come out of Egypt, that was God's revealed will for his people. That was God's true guidance 
And that was going to happen. So how did God bring about that migration to Egypt? Well, sometimes through the trouble that Jacob experienced, and here through the joy that Jacob experienced. It didn't seem to matter. God was working as well. And we're looking forward to the Exodus to come. And by the way, the introduction to this whole list of names here, where it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went down to Egypt. If you look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, that exact formula is repeated again. Clearly, as an introduction to the Exodus about to take place. Clearly, the future event is in view right here. See, this isn't about just what God is doing with Jacob today. God is working his plan to send his people down to Egypt to grow them as a nation, to bring them back 400 years later, to plant them in the land, and to grow them and bring out a Messiah, to bring salvation to the world. That's what God is doing. Yes, they will become slaves burdened by making bricks. Yes, there will be plagues and terrible trouble. But God will raise up Moses with 40 years of prosperity in Egypt and 40 years out tending sheep in the desert, joy and sorrow, until God miraculously delivers his people Egypt, whom he sent there from Egypt where, where he sent them 400 years before. In all of it, though, in Jacob's life, in the life of Israel, in the life of Moses to come, it's all mixed with joy and sorrow. But in all of it, God is working his plans. That's how he works. God's guidance isn't about me trying to find some omen. God directs his people. It's not about me, me, me following my feelings, whether they're good or bad. No, God is working his sovereign will. He calls me to simply trust him and obey his word. Along the way, I make lots of hard decisions. Some of them I make well, some of them I make poorly. But God's not at the mercy of our, our, our weakness. He is directing our paths, whether we feel like it or not whether we're aware of it or not, he will bring about his will in the lives of his children. That's why it's so important to trust and obey him, whether in joy or in sorrow, because he holds all the reins. He is all we have. He's all we need. That's exactly the pattern of the New Testament. In Romans 8, verse 9, we read, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If you know Christ, God's Spirit is controlling your steps. If not, you're hopelessly lost. Those are the two categories. If you know Christ, you have his spirit, and his spirit control. If you don't know Christ, you're lost. You need to find the Savior. So all that matters, then, is just to know Christ, isn't it? To follow him, to trust him, to delight in him, to listen to his word, to know with confidence that he is directing my path. 
Does that mean we'll know lots of joy or we'll know lots of sorrow? It doesn't mean either. Sometimes we'll know joy, sometimes we'll know sorrow. Some of us will know lots of joy. Some of us know almost all sorrow. It's immaterial. It doesn't matter. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in are incidental. For in joy and in sorrow, God is directing our path. Those he chose, he calls. Those he called, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. No one is lost. What God has chosen to do, he absolutely will do. And in that context, there in Romans 8, the apostle can write with confidence, and we know, and we know, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. God works only joy in the lives of his children? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that God who chose us before the foundation of the earth and will glorify us in Jesus is going to work every detail to get us from there to there. In joy and in sorrow, God directs our steps. Well, folks, we need to learn to rest in this truth. Jacob's faith was terribly weak sometimes. He had very little confidence that this was true. And therefore, he faced a lot of needless grief, frankly. He didn't trust the Lord very well. Joseph, on the other hand, who had a lot more trouble in his life than Jacob ever had, came to realize that God is sovereign. And God is working these things out. And it's not the hatred of my brothers that's controlled my life. My God is in control. So what about the hatred of my brothers? It's, it's incidental. God is in control. Therefore, Joseph's able to rejoice even in the midst of terrible pain. This morning I call you to rejoice in the promise of God. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. No matter how bad your situation. I'm not trying to be insensitive. But God hasn't forgotten you. In fact, God is using trouble intentionally to bring you to an end of yourself so that you trust him. He wants you to abandon your confidence in yourself and trust completely in Christ Jesus. Trust that on that cross he paid the penalty of your sin and made you right with God. Trust him for forgiveness and peace with God. Trust him to hold the reins of your life. Trust him for strength to quit sinning and to walk in righteousness. Trust him for eternal life. Trust him for wisdom and grace for whatever today holds for you. Well, I'm not saying your trouble doesn't hurt. I'm not saying everything is right and fair in the world. It's not. We live in a terrible, sin-cursed world. What I'm saying is God is in control. You don't understand that. Neither do I. His ways are a mystery. But this we know. In joy or in sorrow, matters not. God always directs the ways of those who trust.